the Romans part 27. We're starting Romans chapter 9 this week. Um, and in Romans chapter 9, we take a different turn and we'll cover some of that. Uh, Paul kind of changes topics of what he's talking about. Uh, but we'll look at the first five verses. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my kin- uh, brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Uh, so the first three verses, he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. Uh, and there's a couple other times where Paul talks about, or uses that phrase, I lie not. Uh, Galatians 1.20. Uh, he says, Now behold the things which I write unto you. Behold, before God I lie not. In Galatians 1, he's telling them, uh, in verse 11, he says, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which is preached to me is not after man. So he's explaining to them how that he received the revelation of the mystery uh, by Jesus Christ, straight from Christ. Right? He didn't learn it from any man. Uh, he says, immediately after that, I didn't uh, confer with flesh or blood. Right? Jesus Christ showed me uh, these things. So he says, I lie not. I'm telling the truth. God is my witness. Uh, also in 1 Timothy 2.7, he says, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. So there again, the same thing uh, where he's talking about the mystery, right? The gospel that was committed to him as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity, right? He says, before God, I lie not. Um, I speak the truth in Christ. So very similar to what he says here in Romans 9, verse uh, 1. Uh, so he wants to make the point, right? What I'm telling you is the truth, right? It's true. I'm in Christ. I lie not, right? So he wants to make sure that they understand, right? This is true. These are not my words. These are the Spirit's words. Uh, he says, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now, throughout Paul's ministry, he talks about having a clear conscience before God in Acts 23, 1. He says, And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Uh, same thing in Acts 24, 16. He says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. So Paul tried to practice, right, having that good conscience, right, before God, but also before men. So right here, what he's writing, he says, I'm telling you the truth. My conscience also bear me witness uh, with the Holy Ghost, right? So again, he has that good conscience that he's not misleading these people, right? He always keeps that good conscience towards men, right? He's speaking the truth. Uh, verse 2, he says that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Uh, Romans 10, 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Um, so to know Paul, if you know Paul, right, we follow Paul, right? Paul is our apostle. But if you know Paul, you know that he had a great sorrow for Israel, right? He was very concerned for his brethren according to the flesh for Israel. He wanted to see them saved. Um, throughout the book of Acts, he goes to the Jew first, which shows his desire to see them saved. Um, Acts 17, 1 through 3. says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. So said, as, uh, as Paul's manner was, he would go into the synagogues and... Um, basically reason with the Jews out of their scriptures, trying to show them that the Christ that he preached fulfilled the prophecies of the scripture, that he was the Christ uh, that the scriptures prophesied about. If you look at Acts 22, verse 17 through 22, it says, And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. 
and saw him saying unto me, Make haste, and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they knew that I am prison and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto his word, unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. So here it seems like Paul's in Jerusalem, right? He wants to minister to the Jews there. And Jesus tells him, Get out, they're not going to receive you. And Paul is kind of like he's arguing back with Jesus, saying, You know, they knew that I imprisoned, right, people out of the synagogues that believed on you that when they stoned Stephen, your martyr, I was there consenting to their death. So he's like, these people know me. They knew who I was before, right? They'll believe me, right? And because I've changed, right? There's going to be a reason I changed. They'll believe my testimony that I've seen you, right? So it's kind of seems like he's arguing, right? That, you know, let me preach to them because I believe they'll, they'll believe it because they knew who I was beforehand, right? I was like them, right? Consenting to these people's death. Uh, but, of course, Jesus says, depart, I'm going to send you far to the Gentiles. So, again, just showing Paul's desire throughout his ministry to see right, Israel saved, his uh, kinsmen in the flesh. Um, in Acts 28, 28, he says, Be it known, therefore, unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, that they will hear it. And so, at the end of Acts, right, Paul, again, calls the Jews together, explains to them that Jesus that he preached right, was the one from the prophets, and he said some of them believed and some of them didn't, right? And so he says, right, since you reject salvation, um, now going to the Gentiles from now on, right, because you are rejecting it. Uh, and so it's interesting, after the Acts period, some of Paul's later epistles, you really don't see him mention that much about Israel, right, because he kind of at that point in time said, okay, you reject it, right? You don't want to know the truth. Uh, but during the Acts period, you see, even in the epistles, Paul addresses the Jews a lot. Like in Romans, he addresses Jews a lot. Corinthians, Galatians, right? In those earlier epistles, you see him addressing the mixed crowds a lot, right? Jews and Gentiles. Whereas in the later epistles, it's more just the Gentiles. Um, but again, just showing Paul's desire to see his kinsmen in the flesh saved. Um, it says, For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So there he clearly says, right? If I could be, right, I would wish myself a curse from Christ. For my kinsmen, uh, my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Right, so he even had such a great desire to see them say that he was willing to be cut off from Christ. Right, to be under a curse. Right, um, if that meant that they would get saved, Israel would get saved. Uh, the word a curse means a curse and is always uh, in reference to judgment. It's used four times in outside of Romans nine. Paul uses it in all four of those times. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. It says, Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus a curse, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. So he says, No one speaking in the Spirit calleth Jesus a curse. Right? No one will call Jesus cursed if they're speaking in the Spirit. The other place is 1 Corinthians 16, 22, where he says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. That word anathema is the Greek word for a curse. Um, so he says, let him be a curse. And then Galatians 1. It's used twice in Galatians 1. Where Paul talks about, if any man preach... Uh, he says, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. All right, so there he says, If anybody preaches a different gospel than what we preach to you, even if it's an angel, right, let that person be accursed. Let there be a curse upon that person. Um, so again, it's the word anathema. If you look at Acts twenty three fourteen, just to show... That it means curse. Acts twenty three fourteen. It says, and they came to the chief priests and elders and said, "We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will not, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul." So again, these were these Jews that had made a vow to kill Paul. And so they said, "We have uh, bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul." 
Um, so again, the Greek, basically they anathematized ourselves with an anathema. That's what that means, right? We have put ourselves under a curse. Um, so Paul's prayer here, where he says, I wish that I would be a curse for my kinsmen according to the flesh, is similar also to Moses. It's interesting. Moses prays this similar prayer for the nation of Israel before God was going to judge them at one point. Um, in Exodus 32, verse 31 through 35, it says, And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. So of course you all know the story of the children of Israel making the golden calf while Moses was up in Mount Sinai. And when he comes down and sees it, right, he throws the tablets to destroy it. And God is going to basically wipe out the nation, right, at that point. And Moses prays his prayer. He says, forgive them of their sins, but if you won't forgive them, blot me out of your book, right? Take me out instead. That's what Moses is praying there. Um, so again, it's very similar, interesting there, to what Paul is saying here, right? If I could, uh, he says, for a I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. Um, but notice the word wish. He said, I could wish that myself were a curse, which gives evidence to Paul's uh, spirit-inspired words that we covered last week in Romans 8, 35 through 39, where he talks about nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. All right, so Paul can wish for that, you know, if it was possible is basically what he's saying, which gives evidence that it's not possible. Right, nobody can become cut off from Christ once they're saved. Right, we cannot take another person's place for judgment either, as you saw with the Lord's response to Moses. He said, "Those who have sinned against me are the ones I'll blot out of my book, not you, Moses." Um, but he says, "I wish that I could do that," giving evidence that he cannot. Right. Um, but he says, "My brother, my kinsman, according to the flesh." Um, so again, you see Paul throughout his epistles use the word "brethren." Right but he's speaking of brethren in the spirit, right, in the body of Christ. Here he's specifically talking about my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So that according to the flesh tells us he's speaking of Jews. Um, Acts twenty-one thirty-nine. we know this because Paul was a Jew. Acts twenty-one thirty-nine. it says, But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of known mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak to, unto the people. So he says, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, right, of the city in Cilicia. Acts uh, 22.3. He says, I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. So again, same thing. I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. Uh, Galatians 1.14 Verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. So again, you understand Paul's background. He says he profited in the Jews' religion above his equals, right, out of my own nation. Right? He was more exceeding, exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. And if you look at Philippians... Uh, chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So again, you understand Paul's history. As a Jew, he was zealous of the law. Right? He says, I was blameless in the law. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I don't know, often we look bad on the Pharisees, right? They were hypocrites or whatever. But that's what you want it to be in the nation of Israel. A Pharisee obeyed the law to the letter, right? Whereas the Sadducees more spiritualized things. 
the Pharisee took it to the letter. Uh, so it was a praise or an honor to be considered a Pharisee. Right? Um, and of course, they were hypocritical, but um, that's a good thing there when Paul says, I was a Pharisee. Right? That would have been accommodation for him uh, in the Jewish religion. Uh, so it's clear that Paul was a Jew. So when he says, my kinsmen according to the flesh, that's who he's talking about, the Jews. Um, but why is Paul sorrowful for Israel here? Uh, their answer is because they rejected the gospel. And of course you ask, which gospel? The gospel of the kingdom. Uh, they had rejected their Messiah. Um, Luke 9, verse 2 and 6 says, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. In verse 6, it says, they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So here, Jesus is sending out his disciples, giving them a commission to preach the gospel. And we know that Christ had not yet died or risen, so it wasn't the gospel that we preach today. All right, so it was the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, we know in Matthew 10, he says, you are only sent, or I'm only sent to the house of the lost sheep of Israel. All right, so Christ came preaching to the lost sheep of Israel the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Mark 15, 14, as you study through the four gospels in the book of Acts, you see that Israel rejects this message. Mark 15, 14, it says, Then Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out, The more exceedingly crucify him. All right, so again, Christ at trial. Pilate says, What has he done? And, of course, the Jews are saying, crucify him, crucify him. So, again, they demanded the crucif uh, crucifixion of Jesus. And then in Acts 2, 22 through 23, this is what Peter tells them. Speaking to Jews here. Verse 22, he clearly says, you men of Israel, hear these words. So, even if there were Gentiles there, he's not addressing them. Right? He says, you men of Israel, hear these words. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So again, this is an accusation against those men of Israel, right? You've, with wicked hands, taken Christ, crucified him and slain him. Um, but this is why Paul, right, has this sorrow for his nation, right? They've rejected the gospel, they've rejected Christ, and they've been set aside at this point. So he has this continual sorrow um, for his kinsmen in the flesh that they would be saved. That's what he says in Romans 10.1. Right? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Um, so again, to know Paul, you have to know what his desire was. And he had a strong desire to see his nation saved. Um, but that's why he's sorrowing, right? Because they had rejected it. Um, verse 4, he clearly says who these kinsmen in the flesh are. He says, who are Israelites? All right, so I'm I uh, wish that I could be a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So if you had any doubt of who his kinsmen in the flesh are, he clears it up by saying, who are Israelites. So again, Paul wants to be very clear here, right? He says, I'm speaking the truth, I lie not. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Ghost, that I'm very sorrowful, um, have a great heaviness. It's like he's almost redundant with every point he's trying to make here, right? I lie not, have a good conscience, I have a great heaviness, I have continual sorrow, I wish that I could be a curse for my brethren, my kinsmen in the flesh, who are Israelites. So you see this redundancy. He wants to make this point clear of what he's talking about. And it's clear he's talking about the nation of Israel, right? Um, but he says, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption? So again, we've clarified who he's talking about. I'm not talking about Gentiles, not talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about Israelites. He's talking about the Jews, right? His nation, his kinsmen, his court, uh, according to the flesh. Uh, but he says, to them... Uh, uh, pertaineth the adoption. Um, if you look at Exodus 4.22, so he's going to go through and list several blessings or promises, things that were given to Israel specifically. Um, Exodus 4.22, he says, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. So Paul says, to whom pertaineth the adoption. Israel was God's firstborn son. Um, Christ is his only begotten son, which is different than being a son of God, right? Um, son of God, Israel was that firstborn, right? Because God bore that nation. He created that nation, right? 
he made it out of Abraham. Um, so God created that nation. He calls them his firstborn. Members of the body of Christ are also referred to as sons of God, being in Christ, the Son of God. If you look at Philippians 2.15. Paul says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So he says that you can be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. So he's referring to these people he's writing to as the sons of God. Um, Ephesians 1.5. says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So it's by Jesus Christ that we have this adoption as children of God. And then also Titus 3.7 says that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So again, we are heirs with Christ. In Romans 8, it talks about being joint heirs with Christ. Um, because we are in him, right? So when you're in Christ, you are now a son of God, being part of the son of God, um, which is different than being a nation born of God. So again, we have adoption. We are now the sons of God being in Christ, but it's different than the adoption that Israel had, being created a nation, God's firstborn. Um, but it says to them, pertaineth the adoption uh, and the glory. Um, so the glory speaks about the glory that was shown on Israel. I'll look at several passages here. Exodus 29, 43. It says, And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. Because God's presence was there in the tabernacle. Right, that was his house. That's where he dwelt. That's where his glory dwelt. Um, so he says, I will sanctify the tabernacle by my glory. Um, if you look at Numbers 14, 22. It says, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice. So he says, Because all those men which have seen my glory. And it's referring to the miracles and wonders that he did when they were in Egypt and when they were in the wilderness, right? They saw God's glory, right? The manifestation of it in the miracles and the things that he did. Isaiah 43, 5 through 7. It says, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north and give up and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So this is talking about when God will gather all the nation of Israel back to Jerusalem. And he says, everyone that is called by my name, that is a Jew, um, I have created him for my glory. So again, talk about that nation of Israel. He created it for his glory. Isaiah 46, 13. He says, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So he clearly says, Israel is his glory. Um, and then 1 Samuel 4, 21 through 22. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. So this is when the ark of God is taken by the Philistines, and Eli there, this is his daughter-in-law, she names her son Ichabod, which is saying, The glory is departed from Israel. I think the word, uh, name Ichabod means inglorious, which means God's glory had been removed, right, because of the ark of God was taken away. Um, so showing there that Israel had the glory of God, right? When the ark was stolen, that was taken from them, and the Philistines conquered Israel. 
right? And you didn't see the power of God in battle and things of that nature. Um, so when it talks about Israel uh, was given the glory, that's what it's referring to. It's talking about the glory of God given to Israel, doing miracles and wonders and taking care of that nation, showing them as his glory, right? Providing for them. And then we saw verses two that talked about in the future, he will bring them back to Zion and salvation will be there in Zion for Israel, my glory. Um, so again, this is not something that we as members of the body of Christ can claim, right? We have not seen that glory of God, right? We haven't seen God making the, na uh, the body of Christ as a nation, right? Doing miracles and wonders to the world through us, right? That's not what he's doing. We preach the glory of the mystery, right? Which is different than the glory that was given to Israel. If you look at Colossians 1.27, we have a hope of glory, which is Christ in us. He says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the glory that we have is a hope of glory, resurrection, Christ in us, that we will be as Christ is. Right? And he says that we can know the riches of the glory of this mystery. So there is a glory to the mystery, but it's different than Israel's glory, okay? Uh, we cannot claim the glory that Israel had uh, because he says to them pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants. So again, this is another one that many Christians tried to claim today, right? We're under the new covenant. Well, here it clearly says the covenants, plural, were given to Israel. Uh, there is nowhere in scripture where it talks about the church having a covenant, okay? The body of Christ is not under a covenant. There is no scripture for that. Every scripture that talks about the new covenant says it's given to Israel and to Judah. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31-33. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So very, very clearly, the new covenant is with Israel. And of course, you can't have a new covenant unless you have an old covenant. And everybody agrees that the church wasn't given the old covenant. Right? That was given to Israel and the church was given the new covenant. That's not possible because you can't have a new covenant without first having the old one, okay? Um, so it's called the new covenant because it replaces the old covenant. Um, but that verse clearly says that the new covenant is going to be made with the house of Israel. Um, also Hebrews 8.10, again, quotes that. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. So Hebrews 8.10 is quoting uh, Jeremiah there. And again, it says, this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Um, you also have other covenants made throughout Israel's history with individual people. The first being with Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 18. It says, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, unto, thee, unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So he makes a covenant with Abram about this land, right? I've given you this land. Again, as Christians today, we can't make America God's land, right? That's not a covenant given to us. That was given to the nation of Israel specifically. And he even gives the borders, right? Um, from the river of Egypt into the river of Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadamonites. So again, those rivers do not exist in North America, right? They exist in uh, Israel, in Africa, not North America. Um, so there you have a covenant with Abraham concerning a land. In Psalms 89, verse 3 through 4, you have the Davidic covenant, which has to do with the king coming through David's line. Psalms 89, verse 3 and 4. It says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. So there's this covenant with David, right? That your seed I will establish on the throne forever. Speaking of Christ coming through the line of David. 
And so there again, you have covenants given to Israel, specifically for Israel, that we cannot claim uh, as Gentiles, as members of the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.12 clearly says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we clearly were strangers from the covenants, right? They were not given to us as Gentiles. Um, back to Romans 9, it says that they were also, the giving of the law was given to them. So again, this is something given to Israel, is the giving of the law. Deuteronomy 4.13 And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. So the ten commandments are part of this covenant. Right? So again, the giving of the law, the ten commandments, goes hand in hand with the giving of the covenant. Psalms 147, verse 19. It says, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. Again, they're speaking of the giving of the law, his judgments and his statutes. His word was given to Jacob, given to Israel. Um, it says the service of God was given to Israel back in Romans 9. Uh, unto them given the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the service of God. Uh, the service of God is a reference to the priestly work that Israel will do. If you go to Hebrews 9, verse 1 through 6, Really just 1 and 6. It says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. In verse 6 it says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So there you see the priest accomplished the service of God by going into the tabernacle to offer the sacrifices uh, for the children of Israel. Um, Exodus 19.6 Again, part of the covenant made with Israel. It says, You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So part of that covenant is that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. First Peter 2 9. It says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter's writing to this people that's a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Again, we know Peter's talking to strangers in Gentile country because he's writing to the Jews that were scattered. Um, he calls them a royal priesthood. Uh, Isaiah 2, verse 2 to 3. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is when Israel is made the capital of the world and people are coming to Jerusalem. It says nations shall flow unto it to learn the law of God, because Christ is there reigning. Look at Zechariah 8. Uh, and Israel will be priest in that time, right? Bringing Gentiles to Jerusalem to learn the law. In Zechariah 8, 20 through 23, it says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, It shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord, and seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yet many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass, that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So it says ten men, right, will grab the skirt of one Jew, saying, we will go with you, right, because we've heard God is with you. So again, that's that prophetic fulfillment of the kingdom where Israel is bringing the nations, right, to Jerusalem to uh, worship God and to learn the law from him. And if you go to Revelations, 
Revelation 5.10. It says, And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. And then Revelation 20, verse 6. Uh, these are those who come through the tribulation uh, before the thousand-year um, thousand millennial reign. Uh, it says, This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So again, those that reign with Christ in the thousand-year millennium, those who went through the tribulation, which is not the body of Christ, it's the nation of Israel, they'll be resurrected they were killed during that time and they will be priests of God during this thousand reign millennium again fulfilling the prophecies that Israel would be a royal priesthood right and ministering to the nation bringing them to Jerusalem to worship Christ who is sitting on the throne at that time and of course when you read uh, in Revelation 21 about that new Jerusalem coming down it's Jewish right you have the 12 uh, stones with the names of the 12 apostles the 12 tribes of Israel Right, it's a Jewish kingdom coming down, right? And Israel will reign in that kingdom as priests to the other nations. Um, so again, it says they were given the service of God. That's what it's talking about. Their service of God is them being priests to the nations. Uh, that was given to Israel. Uh, back to Romans 9, 4, it says they were also given the promises. Um, so promises. This is very similar to the covenants, right? They were given promises that Christ would come through them. They were given promises that they would reign over the other nations, Right, that they would possess a land, that they were given this land, Jerusalem. Um, and of course, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, those promises given to Abraham. Right, Those that bless you, I will bless. I will bring you into a land that I will show you. Uh, so you have some of those promises there. If you look at 2 Chronicles 21, 7. says, Howbeit the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and as he promised to give a light to him and to his sons forever. So again, that promise to David, the Davidic covenant, that he would not destroy his house because he promised that Christ would come uh, through the seed of David and would reign on the throne forever. Also, if you look at Luke 12, 32... says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So again, another promise. It's the Father's good pleasure to give the little flock, the remnant, those who believed in Israel, the kingdom. Right? So again, that's a promise given to them that they would have the kingdom. Right? He told the twelve apostles that you would reign on the twelve, uh, the twelve seats, judging the twelve tribes of Israel in the kingdom. So again, these promises are made to Israel. If you look at Acts 13, 32-39... We do have the promise of resurrection, which was first given to Israel because it was prophesied that resurrection comes from Christ. And of course, the prophets uh, foretold of Christ and his death and resurrection. If you look at Paul, he says, We declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. As is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. As concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said, On this wise I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after, they, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So Paul here says, uh, We declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers God hath fulfilled. Uh, the difference here is in verse 4 of Romans 9, it says Israel was given promises, plural. Right? They were given more than one promise. One of those promises was resurrection which is found in Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul says. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And members of the body of Christ, our foundation is in that resurrection of Christ. Um, so again, difference there is singular, right? This one promise uh, that Christ fulfilled is part of our gospel, right? It's our hope of glory, resurrection. 
Um, but it was first prophesied in the Old Testament and given to Israel, really, first. Right, we just get that now. Um, as the mystery has been revealed, how that goes to all nations. God's creating this body of Christ at this time. Um, but it's that, just that one promise that's been fulfilled in Christ that we have a part in, his resurrection. In Romans 9, he says, they were given promises. So it's plural there. There's many other promises given to Israel that we can't claim, right, that is said is not ours, right? You don't find anywhere where it's written, right, the church has these promises as well, that we'll get a land and we'll be a priest to the nations and that, right, that's not given to us, just resurrection. Um, so again, I just want to make that distinction, lest someone say, well, Paul says we had the promises, right? No, he says we had the promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which was resurrection. When David prophesied about your holy one will see corruption, he was talking about Christ. And Christ fulfilled that promise. Uh, but Israel was given promises, plural. And we do not have all of those promises. That was given exclusively to them, to that nation. Uh, he says, whose are the fathers? Um, again, the fathers, if you look at Deuteronomy 10, 15, again, is also plural. The fathers is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Deuteronomy 10, 15. It says, only the Lord had delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. So it says, the Lord had delight in thy fathers. Again, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Also in Acts 7.32, Stephen's message. It says, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, and then he lists the fathers. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So if you had any questions of who the fathers were, Stephen says it's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Okay, that's who the fathers are when you see that statement uh, in the Bible. Um, nowhere in Scripture do you see Isaac and Jacob referred to as your father. Paul in Romans 4 talk about how Abraham is the father of us all because he had justification by faith in what God has said before circumcision. Isaac and Jacob were circumcised. Right, because that covenant had been made with Abraham, right, with the child on the seventh day or eighth day, right, he had to be circumcised. So no doubt Isaac and Jacob would have been circumcised as a very young child before they could place faith in God, right? So that's why Abraham is referred to as the father of us all by faith, right? Being justified by faith in what Christ has said. That's how Abraham is our father. But here he says Israel was given the fathers, right? And nowhere is Isaac and Jacob referred to as our fathers because they were justified by faith and circumcision in the covenant, right? So there's that difference there. Um, again, people try to say, well, we're all the children of Abraham, right? It's spiritual Israel, not physical Israel. No, it says they were given the fathers, plural. You won't see that mention of Gentiles at all. Uh, so it says, who are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came? So this is probably their... I'm just called biggest blessing, biggest glory that they could boast in is that concerning the flesh, Christ came. Christ came through Israel, through the nation of Israel. Um, Christ came to Israel, right, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, is what Romans 15 8 says. John 1 11 says, uh, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Um, so Jesus' earthly ministry, right, he was born a Jew in the nation of Israel. He came to the Jews to confirm the promises made of the fathers. Right? He came into his own, and they received him not. Uh, Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says, The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he clearly came from the line of Abraham, from the line of David. Right? He is a Jew. He is a Israelite. So as concerning the flesh, Christ came. Um, who is overall, uh, God bless forevermore. Uh, when it says who is overall, it's not referring to Christ's earthly reign, right, but his lordship, right, he is over all things. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 talks about how he is over all principalities and powers, how God has given all things to him. It says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fulfilleth all in all. So there it talks about how he is above all principality, power, dominion. Right? He has put all things under his feet. So that's what it's talking about when he says who is over all. It's not talking about his reign over earth at this time. 
but just his lordship, right? He is overall. Uh, God bless forever. Amen. Uh, that phrase, God bless forever, bless can mean praise. Uh, you see it in Romans one twenty five. In Mark fourteen sixty one, they asked Jesus, are you the son of the blessed? Or they'll say, are you the son of God? And they refer to him as the blessed. Are you the son of the blessed? The praised. Um, Bulliger said it was a Jewish term used for Elohim, which is a reference to God as creator. Um, so he says it with a Hebraism that they would have known blessed is a reference to Elohim. Um, so you can take that for what it's worth. But it means praise, right? God bless forever, praise forever. Um, and then amen, of course. At the beginning of a discourse, it means surely, truly of a truth. Um, and at the end, it means so it is, so be it, may it be fulfilled. It was a custom which passed over from the synagogues to the Christian assemblies that when he who had read or discoursed had offered up solemn prayer to God, the others responded, Amen, and thus made the substance of what was uttered their own. So again, Paul here is just saying, truly, right? What I'm saying here, truly, uh, so let it be, may it be fulfilled. Right? And so he ends there with Amen. Uh, but you see all these things, again, I think it's like seven things that it's given to Israel specifically, right? And we as members of the body of Christ do not assert those things given to Israel, right? We have things given to us, like a heavenly position, right? All spiritual blessings that Israel did, wasn't given, but we don't take Israel's blessings, right? Those are given specifically specifically to them. And Paul clearly shows that in these verses. He's clearly talking about Israelites to his kinsmen in, according to the flesh. So what are the sudden change in Paul's writings? Right, for the last eight chapters, we've been learning how we're saved by grace through faith, um, learn about our position in Christ apart from the law, right, apart from being a Jew. Um, and at the end of chapter 8, we reach the climax of Paul's teaching about right, salvation by grace through faith, right, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. We had this predestined uh, end, being in the body of Christ, uh, resurrection. Um, it seems that he would move on to how we should live in light of that. Right? It seems like this is where chapter 12 says start. Right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Right? After he's explained the gospel and who we are in Christ. Uh, so the natural question would be, well, if we now have all these things apart from Israel, right? if it's by grace or faith apart from the law, what happened to Israel? Right? What was the point of all that? The giving of the law and making them have circumcision and all that. Right? What would be the point of that if Israel's not relevant anymore? Um, and so this is the question that Paul right, is going to answer in these three chapters. If you look at Romans 11, 25 through 27, he clearly says, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So talking about a future time, a future salvation for the nation of Israel. Right? There will come that time when salvation will come out of Zion. Right? And Israel will be a nation over other nations. Um, so this is what Paul is explaining. Explaining that Israel is currently blinded, fallen, um, in this dispensation, which is the only way salvation could righteously be offered to everyone freely. Okay, because God had made those promises to Israel. And so how can he offer it to Gentiles apart from Israel unless Israel has been set aside based on their rejection of Christ and the gospel of the kingdom? Right, so it took their rejection to set them aside for God to say, if you reject it, you're no different than the Gentiles. So I can now righteously offer salvation to all. Um, so that's what Paul's going to explain in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Um, because it does beg the question, Right? What was the point of everything that God did for Israel if they're no longer relevant? Right? Um, so I got some quotes here from J. Sidlow Baxter. Uh, he says, The apostle has now completed his main argument, chapters 1 through 8, showing how the gospel saves the individual human sinner. Glorious though this gospel is, however, he simply cannot leave off there and affect blindness to the acute problem which it raises in relation to the nation Israel. If Gentiles are now accepted, justified, given sonship and promise on equal footing with the Jews, what about Israel's special covenant relationship with God? Does not this new gospel imply that God has now cast away his people, which he foreknew in Romans 11.2? If the new gospel does mean, that, does mean that, are not God's dealing with Israel the most hypocritical 
the enigma and irony of history, right? So that would be the problem. If Gentiles have all these things now that Israel was going to get some of these right blessings, then it, the dealings with Israel was the most hypocritical enigma, right? Uh, and irony in history. We're not the covenant people that repository of most wonderful messianic promises. We're not the godly among them right in anticipating Messiah's coming as that which would end the sufferings of their people when the scattered tribes should be regathered as one purified Israel and the nation so long ruled by the Gentiles should be should at last be exalted over them. Yet now the Messiah had come instead of consummation for Israel, there was the most reactionary of all paradoxes. Those to whom the covenant promises were given were apparently shut out and some of the long-looked-for benefits were now given, going to Gentile outsiders. Um, so as to the scope of the passage, it is all about God's dealings with men and nations historically and dispensationally, and it's not about individual salvation and destiny beyond the grave. So that's kind of just his statement on what Romans 9 through 11 is about, right? Those who, when you read the four Gospels, you see like, um, is it Zacharias and Matthew or Luke, John's dad? John the Baptist's dad, where he talks about he's come to save us from our enemies. Right? They expected this Messiah to come and save them from their enemies and put an end to their suffering and Gentiles reigning over them. Right? Were they not righteous to do that? No, in the Old Testament. Right? They knew the promises, the prophecies. So if Israel's now set aside and they're no longer relevant, right? they don't have a future, right? as covenant theology teaches, then it kind of makes God's dealings with Israel hypocritical. Right? What was the point of it all? Why couldn't he just make one special line to bring Jesus and then after that say, now salvation's offered freely to all? Why did you have to make this nation and give them covenants and promises right, to not fulfill it? Right? We make God hypocritical in that uh, aspect. And of course, this last part where it talks about the main scope of Romans 9 through 11 is uh, all about God's dealing with men and nations historically and dispensationally. We have to look at it in that scope, historically and dispensationally. It's not talking about individual salvation, right, and a destiny beyond the grave, which is what Calvinists make it. Calvinists love Romans 9 because it talks about election, right? And so you have to remember it's talking about, right, men and nations historically and dispensationally, not individual people being predestined to uh, salvation or a destiny beyond the grave. So that's kind of long... Um, but I think it's interesting, a lot of the verses we read today were from the Old Testament. Because, again, he's talking about Israel here, right? He's explaining what has happened to Israel today. Um, he's not dealing with the body of Christ in these three chapters. Uh, so any thoughts or questions?